Welcome to the Negotiation and Conflict Management podcast series. I'm glad I know that now. This series is brought to you by the NAC team. NAC stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management and all related topics. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. We hope you enjoy this episode. I am Laura Reese, your podcast host for today. Our podcast guest today is Paul Fayad, who has owned several businesses. He has produced a film regarding human trafficking in Nepal called Halambu, How One School Changed Everything. He has developed real estate for amateur sports centers in Detroit and is the co-founder of the Eastside Youth Sports Foundation in Detroit, which helps disadvantaged children play hockey and other sports. He's a supporter of foundations in Nepal, including Sarings Fund, and in Malaysia, including Friends to Mankind. He is an avid high-altitude trekker and hockey coach in his spare time. He has a BS in small business management and entrepreneurship and an MSA with a focus in organizational behavior. He has also just completed his first mass market book, which is why we're here today, called Shaping a Winning Team, A Leader's Guide to Hiring, Assessing, and Developing the People You Need to Succeed. The book is published by Amplify Publishing Group and is due to hit the market by year end. It will be available on Amazon as well as at local bookstores or through their website, positiveleader.com. It will also be on Kindle, Audible, and Google. Check the Positive Leader website for updates on the release of the book. Today's episode focuses on the topic of leadership, and in particular, how leaders can most effectively hire, assess, and develop successful teams. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Fayad. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, let's start with an easy question, but one that is especially useful for those who haven't yet read the book. Could you give us a short summary of what the book is about? Yes, I'd love to. You know, the the concept and the focus of the book is on positive leadership and an understanding of what positive leadership means within organizations. So think of this idea that most managers and leaders believe that a part of their job is to find errors and to fix them. And thereby they'll increase productivity, they'll increase profitability, and they'll produce better outcomes within their organizations. What we've discovered over the years through uh, working with organizations as well as our own, and doing all the research and the studies, positive leadership produces more results than hunting and gathering for issues and problems that may occur. So we introduce the value in the book of focusing on positive outcomes and the recognition of those individuals who are producing these outcomes. So they're the ones that truly increase productivity, lower turnover, and increase profits. So the, the difficulty is how do we do this? It, it sounds as though that it can't be accomplished, but the book's focus is on introducing you as to why it's important, the research showing how important it is, and the results that have happened through all the companies that I've worked with and have provided consulting to. What was your goal in writing the book? So, you know, this day and age, positivity isn't a big thing. Uh, when you look at the uh, news, social media, when you look at our, our political leaders, when you look at the political leaders, global leaders, we're not seeing positivity as something. We're seeing a lot of focus on negative. Uh, there's a lot of bashing going out there. And organizations are starting to realize that the people that are working for them are 
becoming fed up with this. They're they're actually looking for and demanding to be more creative on the work site. They're looking for positive outcomes. They're looking for the ability to create rather than to be told what to do. Within the organizations, we have people that are quiet quitting. We have people that are leaving their jobs. They're seeking meaning in a day-to-day work environment. They want to know that leaders are striving for a better way to lead, and they want leaders to be more respectful of the work that they're doing. So we've got enough leaders out there that we know that are focusing on negative and feeling that as though this creation can be created solely by them as the leader. We need to focus more on the mass, the team making them feel better. So the book was written to get people into this motivation of utilizing positive leadership in order to be able to create a better work environment so that this new workforce, this more demanding workforce can become more loyal. So there's a really important theme of of positivity, would you say, or or is there a a one sentence takeaway? What, What do you really want your readers to take away from the book? The understanding and the importance of personality and behaviors, that a leader can establish skills and encourage positive behaviors, produce positive outcomes. And with that, there will be discouraging negative outcomes and negative behaviors. So I don't I don't want people to think that the book is all about we focus all of our attention on positive and we ignore the negative. It is by facing the negative that we become positive. It is by taking the negative and doing something about it that we become positive. The focus is on learning. So even negative outcomes can produce a learning environment. So I I think the, the one sentence that I want them to understand is positive leadership focuses on positive behaviors without question, but it also focuses on those negative outcomes, but it treats it as a learning opportunity, not as a punishment so that people are gonna make mistakes. But if we punish them all the time for the mistakes they make and not turn it into a learning process, then we're not using positive leadership. I'd like to dive into a metaphor that you use uh, throughout the book. And you've talked often with my classes about it too, and it's such a powerful one. So you use a metaphor of a rowboat and you talk about rowers, drillers, and sitters in the book. Could you tell us what this metaphor is about and how it's useful? So I, you know, it was fun to create this. Uh, my business partner, Dr. Chakfu Lam, and I were sitting around having dinner, and we were getting ready to do a presentation for about 200 nurses in a northern hospital of Michigan, department heads, nurses at a healthcare facility. And we had been talking about the concept of personalities and behaviors and how important it is to understand both personalities and behaviors. So we needed something, we needed a visual to be able to show them in a metaphor, to be able to show them more clearly because in prior presentations, it was difficult to get them to understand the difference between personality and behaviors. Most people tend to want to think that they're related or which they are, but that they're one and the same, I should say, and they're not. So we had used boats before, uh, sailboats before in some of our presentations in the concept that I had created years ago of uh, what we called organizational tacking. And that is the concept that you have to introduce things within an organization in very small chunks and then wait to see what the results are based on just like a sailboat, the weather, the current, uh, the airstreams and everything else. So we wait to see how all the different departments will react to this and then we make another adjustment. So you can't get from point A to point B in a boat 
if you have waves, if you have currents, and if you have airflow, you have to actually tack your way there. So you move in small increments and then adjust, move in small increments and then adjust. The organizational tacking is something I came up with to show people that to get from A to B, it's not a straight line, which is where failure occurs. So on the concept of the boat, we thought, okay, we've got the boat. It's already there. It's at the edge of the dock. Let's convert it from a sailboat to a rowboat. And let's say three people are running down the dock, our three very distinct personality types. The first one gets in the boat and grabs the oars. They're always first in, they're the energizers. They're always focusing on creating success. They're, they're determined to help. They wanna help the organization. They wanna help people around them. They're very positive. They wanna row. They wanna row to the next point and they feel very comfortable doing that. The next person gets in the boat and sits which is the majority of the workforce. Not to say that they're not working, but they're not always creating and they're not always rowing. They're more watching and they'll follow. They follow very, very closely to what the rower is doing in most cases. They'll listen and they'll do things, but they won't step out of that comfort zone. So they're gonna sit and they're gonna watch the rower row. The third person will jump in the boat with a drill and they will drill holes in a boat. So we all know, and you're all going to sit there and say, whoa, that's pretty drastic, but that's a reality. People want to drill. There are people out there that will cause chaos within an organization. That no matter what you do, they complain about the weather, they complain about conflicts, they, they complain about the color of the uniform. They could do things better than the managers can do, and they make sure everybody knows that. And they're a very specific type of personality. So now we've got the rower rowing, the sitter sitting, and the driller drilling. And through all the years of managing, leading, and running companies, as well as working with all of the different organizations that I've worked with and consulting, and the research that we've done in order to be able to arrive at these three different types of individuals, we're realizing that inherently, this is a personality distinction. Rowers will always row. Sitters will sit almost all the time. And drillers want to drill. So now we, we start to realize that the focus of our attention is always as managers is always thinking, I could fix the drillers. And you're probably thinking that right now. I, I know everybody has thought that, that if I fix the drillers, I can increase productivity. I can increase everything. And it doesn't work that way because drillers want to drill. So it's the idea that if drillers want to drill, who are we supposed to be focusing our attention on? So we focus our attention on the drillers, thinking we can change them and in turn create this better workplace, create more productivity, a cohesive group, and the opposite actually occurs. So through the concept of social learning, we understand that in research and in science, that if I focus my attention on one area in particular, like all my drillers, my sitters will become drillers. They will look to be able to mimic what the drillers are doing to get the same attention that the drillers are getting. So through social learning, they're going to either stop working uh, or they're going to start drilling in order to get that attention. And what happens to the rowers is the rowers will leave the organization. Most organizations lose their best productive people when all of the focus is on the people that are that may be productive but may be creating all kinds of grief because they don't want the frustration and they want to be recognized. So when we understand that personalities don't change, that means leaders really need to kind of shift their attention. If I want to increase productivity, I cannot do it as I've seen through research and through all of all of the work I've done with our organizations. I have to shift my focus to the rowers. 
The rowers need to be the ones that I embrace. The rowers need to be the ones that I'm grateful for. With that, I build a positive culture. I start to create a winning team that even involves the sitters. Because now remember social learning. If I focus all my attention on the rowers, what do you think the sitters are going to do? They're going to try to row, or they're at least going to work a little bit harder than they have in the past. Because they're going to want to receive the accolades that the, that the rowers are getting. They're going to want to receive all of the attention that's happening. They're going to want to be a part of a winning team. So I'm not saying that we ignore the drillers, but what I am going to tell you is you need to deal with the drillers through the correction process and not think that you're going to be able to change them. These are people that need to be, that need not to be a part of your organization. These are people that need to be removed from the organization because they're not going to change and you're wasting a lot of time working with them. You know, it's such a powerful metaphor, but you also use another descriptive tool in your writing and in your teaching to talk about A, B, and C players. And you combine this with the rowers, drillers, and sitters metaphor to finish that. So could you unpack what that three by three matrix means and how we can use that in our own lives? Sure. And this, this, this actually helps people to understand the difference between a behavior, which can also be a skill set, as well as a personality, which is more in tune to an attitude. I don't want to make it so simple to say that it's just attitude, but it is in part how it is that we approach work and not so much the work that we are accomplishing. When we started to look at the personalities across the top, we had to also acknowledge the fact that there are skill levels. And it kind of came up with the sporting world and understanding and having been a part of hockey all my life and coached hockey, played hockey, you know, on an amateur level. It's it's understandable that you can have people on a team that were extremely skilled, but were poisoned in the locker room. And these are the people that do not create team environments. Well, you have the same thing happening at work. So you have A, B, and C is what we put to the left side of the matrix. So on the top three, we have rower, sitter, driller. And then next to it, alongside the, what is it, the y-axis, we have A, B, and C. So A, B, and C flows down. A is your A players. They're the number one players. They're the one that get the job done. In sports, they're the first line that goes out there. We trust them by their skill level. B is maybe not as good as A's, but can get there or maybe satisfied with being a B. And C players could be rookies, people that you just hired on a job. They're going through training. They're going through education, onboarding, the whole nine yards. Or there are people that are just stuck in C that actually don't want to work any harder, uh, which happens also. So we're sitting here as managers and we're trying to get Cs to become Bs and Bs to become As. But you got to look at the matrix because you're also working within the concept of the rover sitter driller. So if I have a driller who's an A player, and in healthcare, you see it a lot. You see clinicians that are extremely good at what they do, or doctors that are extremely great surgeons, but have terrible bedside manners. You know, they're the kind of people that you don't want to talk to, but you want them to operate on you because they're very good at what they do. So they are, they could be drillers without question. It comes in all forms. It, it's instructors, it's coaches, it's, it's bosses, managers, leaders of companies can be extremely talented, very skilled, but also a driller, somebody who might be egotistical or uh, egocentric or even narcissist in some ways and wants everything to be about themselves and creates an environment of chaos. So the idea is that with, with your driller A, 
I'm thinking I got to keep that person on board. And I may even focus my attention on the B and C drillers and thinking that if I make them A, as well as all the other Bs and Cs within this matrix, I'm going to increase productivity. So what ends up happening is we spend the majority of our time in the driller section trying to improve the Cs and Bs, thinking that we could keep the As if we could just change their attitude and make them better, make them better workers, make them be a part of the team, and we're wasting our time. When all of the work should be over in the rowers section where I advance the Bs and Cs to become As, I work with the training and invest time in their skill development and even in the sitter just spending a lot of time developing them from B's and C's to A's, if I focus my attention on that part of the matrix, I'm actually going to get higher productivity even if I lose the driller who's highly skilled because of the fact that they're gonna act like a team and they're gonna to wanna to be a team. So when, I, when leaders focus on everything that is negative, that's everything that's turning out negative, we create also an atmosphere of distrust. So if I'm not focusing on positive outcomes, I'm focusing on negative outcomes, then I'm creating an atmosphere of distrust. And within an atmosphere of distrust, people will be afraid to make mistakes. People will be afraid in order to, you know, to do anything uh, creative. Their creativity dies. And that's what ends up happening at most organizations. And then they wonder why turnover is high or quiet quitting occurs and they're, they're, they're not focusing on the success and the energy of what is being produced by the people that are actually willing to do the work in a creative environment, in a team format. So what, we're, what we did with the matrix is we were saying, look, don't fool yourself. You're going to have some A players and they can be drillers. And you're going to think, I can't do without them. They're the best engineer. They're the best worker. They're the best producer of whatever it is that you're making. The problem is, is that you're losing productivity because you're not focusing your attention where it needs to be focused. These people are still drillers and they will still work to upset the environment, create chaos and create distortion throughout your organization. So they have to be dealt with. You know, I'm I'm not an athlete. So when you're talking about this metaphor, I'm just I'm just glad I didn't trip off and fall into the water from the dock or something as I'm running to this boat. But I but I have to ask, you know, it's such a, a rich metaphor. Is there really no hope for drillers? What if we think we're a driller? See, okay. I, I think if somebody is sitting there, first of all, two parts of this question. I think if somebody is sitting there and questioning whether they're a driller or not, then they tend not to be a driller. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. So if you're asking yourself the question of my driller, other than the fact that I just said that by asking that question, you're not a driller. Uh, you really are not a driller. If they're there, the hope is not for the driller. See, that's that's where the error occurs. That's where that's where we always do this. We do this all the time with with in social media. We do it everywhere in the news, on TV, everywhere. We're so worried about the driller. The driller has so much impact on our lives. So we're worried that, you know, what's going to happen to the driller or we're worried about, you know, is it fair to label people whether or not they should be a rower sitter or a driller? Is it fair to do these things? The issue at hand is not worrying about the driller. It's worrying about the fact that there are people out there busting their butts to get the work done that aren't getting any recognition at all. Or, or they're the ones in your family or within, within your personal circle that are the kindest of everyone and they're considered to be weak. 
I'm more worried about the fact that we don't focus our attention on what is positive and stop worrying about what is negative. Stop worrying so much about, or I shouldn't say worrying, but caring for the wrong people. All right. Or, or even thinking that we can help them. So we have to understand that human nature and humanity is rooted in negativity. It's a prehistoric thing. It's, it's survival based. And we know that through science. We understand that there are parts of our brain, like the amygdala, that helps us deal with anything that could be painful to us for survival mode. That Do we need to fight or do we need to flight? That's kicking up all the time. So we're always concerned with that. We're always concerned about what it is that we're going to do, how it is that we're going to do it, only because we're being affected by drillers. So the drillers are the ones that force us into the survival mode. Why would we be worried about whether or not they're going to change or not? If you're asking the question, am I a driller? Truthfully speaking, I haven't even met you. But if you truthfully really ask yourself that question, then you're probably not a driller. You're probably a sitter, which is the majority of the population, because a rower won't even ask that question. Because mm -hmm. a rower knows that they're a rower, that they're a creator, and that people come to them for creation and for help. So that's another way to look at this too, is it might actually help you understand that you may be a sitter and there's nothing wrong with being a sitter, but you're not a driller. So I think you have to really consider that more than anything else. Don't worry about any hope for the driller. I worry about hope for the people that are rowers. And I worry about hope that if we could recognize the rowers, maybe more sitters would become rowers. Maybe we'd have more positive outcomes instead of the negative outcomes that we produce on a constant basis. Well, and thinking about the rowers, you know, one important leadership insight that you shared a long time ago that's always just stuck with me. And so I was really glad to see that that lesson made it into the book as well. But in so many words, you told me that the key that you discovered to being a good leader is to hire people that you believe in, give them the resources to do what they need to do, and then just get out of their way. Is that really being a leader? That's being a positive leader, most definitely. That's being a leader who has trust. So how do we get there, right? First of all, you got to hire the right people. And you can't do that. It's very, very difficult to do without using science. You, you have to use science. Interviews, I always joke about this, interviews are like dating, okay? You're going to go on a date and this person across from you is not going to show you who they truly are. They're going to show you who you want to see. And because you desperately need this relationship, you're actually going to give them indicators so that they can be successful at being able to show you what they can see. And it goes back and forth like this. And then ultimately you go home thinking you've met your soulmate. Well, guess what? That happens in the interview process. I've got 16 openings. I've got to fill these very rapidly. I'm going to interview these people and I'm really going to be giving them answers to the questions that I'm asking questions about without even knowing that I'm giving them the answers. I'm going to smile. I'm going to provide all kinds of uh, critical feedback in order for them to become even more specialized in their answers. And I'm going to select them. And then six months later, I'm going to find out, oh, boy, just hired another driller. And now what do I do? They're in the system. And how long does it take to get people out of the system? A long time, no matter what type of an organization you are. So what I say is this, number one. You have to use science in order to determine who it is that you're going to hire. And that's assessments. And we can talk about that at another point. But if I hire the right people, then what am I doing telling them what to do every single day? 
I go through the onboarding. It has to be very, very good, very detailed. I provide training for them, maybe with a rower or with a leader that's a rower. And then I've got to sit back and let them go. I have to let them do everything that they need to do. They're going to make mistakes, but because of the fact that I trust them, they're not going to hide these mistakes. They're going to communicate with the leaders. They're going to, when they talk to other people, they're going to endorse your organization. This is called a happy employee. And as silly as it sounds, you want people to be able to walk out to their car at the end of the day and feel proud of where they worked. When was the last time you saw that occur? When was the last mm-hmm. time any one of you even felt that, that you were loyal to the organization you worked for, that they trusted you to do things, that they didn't micromanage you, stand over you, or that they didn't endorse the negative things that were happening within the organization by not doing anything about that? So I say, yes, the best leaders in the world hire the best people, train them, put them on a job and leave them alone. They -hmm. will come to you. You will see them and it'll be a greater opportunity for communications to occur. And when issues occur, they're dealt with as learning processes. They're not dealt with as punishment. So that's a lot. And and you got to be good at leading in order to get to that point. So that's a really inspiring way to think about leadership, which is which I just love. But I w- I would kind of turn that question around. And, you know, what if we're not leaders ourselves right now? Maybe we aim to be someday. Maybe it's we're recent graduates or still students or just regular employees. You know, could how can we still apply the insights from your book to ourselves? That's a that's a great question. So absolutely. The book is for the the working class, so to speak. They're for the managing class, the supervisory class, the all kinds of classes. They're for every person within an organization to read. Why? Because you want your leaders to lead this way. And in order, you you you're not as it's not as hopeless as you think because you're not <laughs> the manager or you're not the leader. You have the ability to be able to recognize the rowers that work within your organization and endorse them. You have the ability to recognize the people that are drilling and be able to say, hey, I don't like what you're doing. This is upsetting the organization. Complicity, sitting, not doing anything, not rising up is where we struggle the most. And maybe you've got a leader that may not understand all of this 100%. Then buy that person the book and give them the book. I'm just (laughs) saying, (laughs) I'm just saying, it's an opportunity. If you want to become a good leader in the future, you're going to need this book because you want to turn into more of a coach than you want to turn into an overseer. And unfortunately, we don't learn a lot of this in college. You know, we, we're, we're not taught all this all the time. It's a very special uh, instructor or professor that can get you to understand and endorse these types of thoughts. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that we're taught, find the errors, fix them. So even as workers, we're afraid to say anything. So I wasn't always a leader all my life, okay? I worked within hospitals. I worked within restaurants and all types of organizations. I can't say I always rode. I I like to believe I did, but I want to be realistic. A lot of times I sat back and watched some other people row. But for the most part, when I got the job that I wanted at the hospital that actually endorsed me and, and set me through college and helped with a lot of things in my life, I rode constantly. I was extremely loyal to them. And I worked very hard for them. They saw that. 
And they recognized that. And it led me to be able to get promoted. It led me to be able to move ahead. Now, you also have to think about the fact that even though you may not be a leader or a manager or supervisor at work, you might be a coach. You might coach your son's baseball team, your daughter's soccer team, or any one of your children, your siblings, or anyone that works or is a part of you. You might be helping to coach any kind of a team. Maybe just there's nobody from your family on it, but you're coaching. You're parenting. You have relationships with other people in your life. All of these things apply to those areas. What I'm telling you is you don't just row at work. We can't compartmentalize our brain to just be rowers at work. Rowers who row at work, they're rowing in life. They're the good coaches. They're the one that endorses positive thinking. They're the parents that really, really push creativity. They're the ones that have stable relationships with people and form opportunities with others in their personal lives. So it's kind of like you could take this book and you can utilize this book so that you can understand what a rower is, maybe start to acknowledge them more. When I go to the supermarket or I have a server at a restaurant and I notice that they're the rowers, don't I want to recognize that and appreciate them? Won't they work harder? Won't they provide you with better service? And isn't it the right thing for us to do, right? But we see, and the flip side is we see people that are drillers and we don't do anything about it. We don't tell them that they're drilling. We don't let them know that they're destroying the atmosphere of, of, of our lives, that they're, that they're creating an environment that creates a lot of anxiety and in some cases depression. In all of our work, in all of our lives, we're supposed to be looking for rowers, sitters, and drillers. Building on some of the, the things that you just said, you, you spend the second probably half of the book or so talking a lot about self-awareness and self-development. Could you talk us through some of the key insights and advice that, that you give in that part of the book? It, it kind of goes with the question you just asked earlier. The reality of it is, first and foremost, we're responsible to ourselves and for our actions. And if everybody created more self-awareness to this point, would they be posting the things they post on TikTok, Twitter, social media? Would they be <laughs> bashing people on a constant basis? It is the actions, our actions, ourselves. We, we cannot look at other people and determine what their actions should be or not. We have to look at ourselves and contain and control our own actions first. So as humans, we should be striving every day to be better humans. And self-development is our responsibility. It, it is disturbing to understand that we think that other people are supposed to make us better people. Like, you know, I, I can blame everyone around me for who I am not. But it is myself that I should be blaming. And, and I understand that self-awareness and self-development, that's not easy to achieve, right? Because in most cases, and I'll get a little deep into the weeds here, but I've spent a lot of time in, in the studies that I've done, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, to understand consciousness and unconsciousness. So consciousness is, I recognize my strengths and weaknesses, and I recognize they're part of my inherent personality. I accept who I am. And I know that I have to increase and, and fix and work on my behaviors. If I'm, if I'm not an agreeable person, which is definitely a personality type, then I need to recognize that and understand that my initial comfort level is going to be that I'm going to disagree. And maybe that's going to piss off a lot of people in my life. And maybe I have pissed off a lot of people in my life. So maybe I need to stop and think, what can I do to get myself out of that routine of always being triggered and having that habit of being not agreeable, right? But if I stay in that, I'm unconscious and I will always be unagreeable. Mm -hmm. If I start to witness it and know that I'm unagreeable, 
that I can become conscious. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to do anything about it, but it means that I can at least get it to the part of my brain that develops reasoning, right? Our prefrontal lobe and, and that whole area that provides us to be able to reason as to why it is that we do the things we do. So we're stimulated in this world as we watch other people's lives, you know, on social media and reality TV and all of this. And it's, it, it's, it is, it's nurturing us into a state of unconsciousness. And it keeps us there for a long period of time. Consciousness demands attention to ourselves. They witness our reactions. We witness our reactions of others in the world and people around us. And through this witnessing, we develop strong emotional awareness. And then we can become more self-aware. So this is the concept of rowing throughout all of our life. And rowing is work. All right. If I get in the boat, I want to get to be... Would I rather sit or would I rather row? All right. If I'm not a person who likes exercise, I think <laughs> I'd rather sit and not row. Well, that's the perfect metaphor because think about it. The person who's rowing is using their brain and working hard. They're using every part of their being in order to produce positive energy around us, right? People who are sitting are unconscious or like to remain unconscious and like to let other people do the rowing. So the brain is a muscle, and it's time you start exercising it, right? It's so important to be able to get out of this unconsciousness and start to witness because life is so beautiful. And there's so many things that we could be doing that are more positive than focusing on all the negative that takes place and then saying it's someone else's fault. So I think, you know, I think that's the key. Consciousness has to happen in order for self-development to occur. And I think this is a good segue. I'm, I'm glad you have started talking a little bit about your path. I I'd, I'd love to dive into that a little bit more deeply. And in particular, ask you what role science, philosophy, and other academic disciplines, which is how I approach a lot of these issues, have played in your success as a leader. So we often talk about it, my students really rightly ask, you know, we have theories of various fields like leadership, et cetera, but then there's the practice of leaderships. And, and sometimes we pit these almost as opposite. So in a sense, there's a way things should work according to science. And that's what we study in a classroom. But then here, secretly, the way things actually work in the real world. So you and I have known each other a long time, and I've read the book. And we've had many debates. So I have a bit of an advantage here. But if you could share with our listeners, do you agree with that idea of a dichotomy between science and reality? And if not, how does how do you mesh those? I actually like to think of it as a three-legged stool, and it isn't just science and reality. It's also philosophy, too, and, and maybe I'm not including philosophy as a concept of the real science, so to speak, or the hard science. So I like to think of those as a three-legged stool, and I think if all you live in is this idea that science cannot blend with reality and reality not with science, then you're missing one of the legs of the stool. And if you don't believe in philosophy and, and the, the soft sciences and the, you know, Aristotle and, and Socrates and all of the masters that have, that have written books over the years that talk about all of these things that we're talking about, then you're missing that leg of the stool. And I, I don't understand how we can live a life without having all three legs of the stool. And, and they have to work in conjunction with each other. It is so important. I think I, I think that's where I have been blessed, so to speak, in the idea that somewhere along the line, I don't know, you know, it, it maybe it occurs because I have such an intrinsic desire to learn. And through my educational process, 
I was able to work full time while I worked or I was able to work full time while I went to university full time. So the applications that were coming out of my organizational behavior classes and some of the studies that were there, I would just go in and I would say, I'm going to apply this while I supervise today or while I lead today. And I would see these positive results of what I was doing, or I'd have to make twists or turns. And, and then ultimately, as I got further into my education, my MSA thesis was on self-developed work teams, whether or not they worked back in the 80s, uh, because a lot of the automotive industry was switching to self-developed work teams, removing a lot of leadership. And there was questions as to whether or not people could actually lead themselves, which I always find to be amazing that that question would even come up. Because of course they can, but you have to have the right people. <laughs> That's the difference. And and you can't get the right people without science. So there there is an interwoven fabric. I like to look at it that way of science, of of reality on the job, whatever you want to call it, and of philosophy. And if we don't look at all three of these things together, then we're missing data. And if we're missing data, then we're we're leading blindly. We're living blindly. You don't have to accept everything that you read or see. And there are some things that are published that, you know, in the academic circles that maybe were just tests or thoughts that could happen. But in most cases, I, I don't find that to be true. I find that all the research that I've gathered and being invited to your classes, being invited to other professors' classes, and then, you know, having these conversations that we have when we sit and we have dinner, you know, these intellectual conversations about how do we mix science with the real world? And then having a business partner who's who's a professor um, and teaches full time as a professor to be able to say, you know, have him give me ideas of what research is out there and some of the thoughts or processes that I have that pop into my head and, and, and suddenly... I see a research document that actually says what it is. I think that that answers at least that part of it. Maybe if I explain a little bit of my background as to why this was so important to me. And I, I spent the first four years of my college. Uh, and by the way, I paid for all of my education up until my master's program, which my business helped me with. But, you know, I came from a very poor family. We were, you know, from Lebanon. My family was from Lebanon. I was first generation born in the United States. My dad didn't speak English very well when he first came here. He became a carpenter. Education was very important to me. I wanted to be one of the ones that went on to college because in my dad's family, my mother's family, that wasn't always the case, especially my mom's family. Only one of the nine children went to college. For me, college was very important. And like I said, I had this intrinsic desire to learn. So I spent the first four years, I wanted to get into forensic medicine. I, and it's such a crazy thing when you think about it, right? So had a lot of classes in sciences and math. I, I'm in love with science and math. You know, I, I, I'm always looking at how things are invented. It's always a fascination to me, uh, reading about mathematicians over the years and how they arrive at their theories and conclusions really fit well with how business works in my mind. But as my fourth year got there, I had really great advice from a mentor who said I should be working with live people and not dead people and convince <laughs> me to switch from forensic medicine to the school of business. And I thought, Jesus, you know, I'll do it. And then I had to start all over again because hardly any of my classes transferred. But the science always stuck in my head. And the degree in small business management and entrepreneurship at that time in the late 80s, that degree or the mid 80s was a brand new degree. 
people didn't understand entrepreneurship as they do now. It was somewhat of a science, if you think about it. It was a it was questionable as to what exactly did it mean. A step beyond being a gas station owner or a party store owner to actually being an entrepreneur of large organizations. And that really turned me on. Then, you know, once I got into a couple of classes in organizational behavior, I chose the MSA route uh, of an executive MSA program so I could continue to work full time and fell in love with organizational behavior because I thought this is the perfect mix. And then wrote the thesis on self-developed work teams uh, spent a lot of time talking to the automotive companies in order to do that. And it became an obsession because I started to realize as I'm mixing all these things together, now I'm starting to run this company that I had been a part of, that the importance of developing programs for people to be able to see what quality was and how to move things forward, process-driven organizations. I got heavily into TQM. And then it became the idea that not everybody can produce quality. Why can't everybody produce quality? And then starting to realize that personalities played a factor in it. So you could kind of see the rabbit hole I kept digging myself in was the further I got down into how do I make the best managers the best managers? And then I would bring them in for three days to what we call the Q school. And then they spent three days with me doing all the training. Even though I was a CEO, I was so in love with the training process, teaching them self-directed, teaching them all these things, teaching them TQM, and then putting them out in the field and then going into the field and watching what they produced made me realize that not everybody could actually produce the outcomes that were expected from three days of training. Some could do it like that and others really struggled. Well, why is that? How do you not go to science to figure out that answer, right? I have to use science. I have to use assessments. I have to know that personalities play a factor in this in determining the outcome and the behaviors of these people. So now, you know, I'm working with the University of Tulane. I'm working with the University of Minnesota at the time. I'm looking at, you know, Myers-Briggs. I'm looking at a couple of companies up in Canada that do assessments. And I'm trying to arrive at assessments that would produce what I would find to be important factors in people being able to be successful in a job. And that's when Andrew, who back in the early 2000s, was at the University of Michigan and he met uh, Dr. Chakfu Lam, who was getting his he was a PhD candidate at the university. Two of us sat down at lunch and we fell in love with each other. It was a, a, a bromance, so to speak. I guess they call it <laughs> But he was he was so interested in the business outcome. I was so interested in I need the science information in order for the business outcome to happen that we we merged and we we created a positive leader. And after a couple of years of traveling, because uh, our organization won so many awards for best places to work, everything started to kind of gel together. The company was extremely successful that we decided that we needed to form our own assessment. And that's when we teamed up. And over the course of about six years, we created the positive assessment tool, the PAT that we still use to this day. Then with that, you know, I met you, uh, Professor Reese, in, you, at University of Michigan, kind of followed you through two countries and about four different universities. Uh, <laughs> and you've been so grateful, you know, so gracious, I should say, to allow me to come and lecture at the classes and, you know, continue to lecture at, at Dr. Lamb's class. In fact, the two of us, when he was at Suffolk University in Boston, actually created 
an MBA course on positive leadership there. And I had a chance to teach it for a week while he was in Hong Kong visiting family. Um, and I continue to love being able to come out to talk to the students about this. Uh, so I've been all over the United States. I've been, I've had the pleasure up in Canada and in Hong Kong. I'm doing work right now in Malaysia with an institute there. So over you know the past 30 years, I've, I've evaluated hundreds of studies. I don't even know how many. I have a bookshelf here that's filled with almost 800 books. Uh, about half of them are on business or philosophy, you know, covering different areas of how we develop our humanity and who it is that we are, just in curiosity. And then recently, by my eldest son again, who continues to introduce me to people that always help me with my life, I started working with the DV Institute under uh, Dion Bamal, who's a modern day scholar, philosopher. He studies masters of the past, all the way to Socrates, you know, Guji, Osho, Krishnamurti, and a lot of the other writers of philosophy to understand another part of the human condition. So we've teamed up and I'm doing workshops now with in Malaysia. Looks like we'll be doing some work in India and doing some workshops. And it's and it's still once again tying the philosophical part of what we do to the science part of what it is to the reality or on the job, so to speak, of what's produced. So I got to say, I'm proud of my relationship without question. I believe that my success in business and my personal life is contributed to the fact that I've stayed so close to the academic world. And I even feel that the concept without question, I don't feel, I know, we never would have arrived at rower sitter drillers without science. I, I never would have arrived at half the things that I work on without science. You know, I look at people like Daniel Goldman, who was a part of Harvard for many years, and for 25 years, he's developed coursework on emotional intelligence. The sciences are what create the algorithms that we use, the annuity charts that we use, the mathematical probabilities that we have. You know, we discover how motivation works through our through our behavioral sciences. And how could you ignore the work that's being done on the brain right now and the mapping of the brain as it applies to me to be able to work with people to help them become better leaders or to recognize their personalities? You'd be closing your eyes to these areas in, in your in your work environment, if you didn't take them, learn them, and apply them, I don't think you could be as successful. I think in this day and age, especially for what we have coming at us, we're going to need more science to help us get through all of this. So I'm a big proponent. Gosh, that's an amazing shout out to science. I appreciate that. And I, I promise our listeners, I did not pay you or force you to, <laughs> to say that endorsement. You know, I think it shows part of why what you've done is, has worked so well. And, and you know, you've, you've been so successful. You've had many successful careers, I should say. You've retired at least once that I know of, but I'm guessing it's actually probably multiple times. You know, you've won awards, as you noted, for, for your work in creating positive workplaces. You've been consistently, for the more than a decade, one of my students' favorite guest speakers. Uh, and you often share your insights forward and, and sort of pay that forward. You dedicated philanthropist, you frequently travel the world for lots of different reasons. So why, why a book? Why write a book? Why now? You know, I, I, I want to be able to say that I, that I, that I have an answer to that. I, you know, I'm, I've thought about that. I've sat with my wife. I've sat with, you know, 
a lot of people that are close to me, you know, I Chuck Fu and I 10 years ago, I think, I don't know, maybe it was 10, 12 years ago when he was at Suffolk University, before he returned back to Hong Kong to work at City University in Hong Kong. We were at a hotel in downtown. We, we had both got done teaching two, three days of his MBA coursework on leadership and negotiations and a bunch of other stuff that I was guest speaking at. And, you know, we're just sitting there uh, drinking tea, of course. And we said to ourselves, you know, we really need to write a book about Rover Sitter Driller because at some point, you know, I'm going to die. He's going to die. <laughs> no one's going to know about Rover Sitter Driller. And, you know, other than a handful of people that are out there and we were like, yeah, let's do that. And we actually sat down over the course of, I think, a day or two and we plotted out some, you know, what what would what would the, the chapters look like? It was kind of a fun thing to do. Uh, and then all hell broke loose. You know, Chuck Fu had to go back, uh, decided he would go back to Hong Kong to live and teach in Hong Kong. That 12-hour difference kind of put a little damper into our relationship of being able to meet daily and talk. And he used to spend a lot of time at my house. Uh, and that kind of had to subside because he was on the other side of the globe. And I'm going back and forth to Hong Kong and he's coming here. But you know, he's starting his family and doing the things that he needs to do. And I got involved in so many other things like the charity, creating the new uh, Eastside Youth Sports Foundation. And I didn't see myself as that person. And I actually, I have to be honest with you. I'm a very positive person. In fact, my strength finder says it's my number one strength. Mm. <laughs> and and I've, I've often pictured myself as being somebody who is very caring but I started to, you know, my travels through Nepal and through some of the emerging nations and, you know, seeing all the things that were happening, I actually started to get more depressed. And I thought, you know, as I'm heading towards my 60s, I, I was like, nobody gives a shit about positive leadership or about positivity, you know, and certain people were elected into certain positions throughout the globe that were endorsing just negative leadership. And, and it was like, it just seemed like the world is not interested in what is positive. The world is interested in what is negative. And I know it's a survival technique and I know that's a part of our basic instinct, our lizard brain as they call it. But it was like, just so frustrating to me. And I thought maybe maybe in this go around of this, this lifetime of mine, it's not going to happen. Maybe that maybe it, things might be different and people might open their ears to what it is that needs to be said in all areas, including the work environment. I went to a workshop that Dion Bamal had put on in the Institute. My son had suggested I go to Sweden and I spend 10 days there at a workshop on just creativity. He did a whole workshop on creativity. And he it was the first time I got to meet him in person because of COVID. I had only met him online. And he invited me back to his place to sit down and talk about what I do. And I started telling him he absorbed it all. And then the next day he exploded. He was like, this is the most amazing thing. This is so beautiful. The concept of rover sitter driller needs to be out in the world. People need to know because think about it. You know, you think about it. I think about it. We all think about it. how many times have we been affected by a driller in our lifetime? Somebody who's close to us could be a family member, could be somebody that we work for and how they just created all kinds of, of havoc in our lives, you know, steering us in the wrong directions, you know, pointing out all the negativity of what they do. And his idea was that 
not only do we need to recognize and endorse the rowers in our lives that could have been great mentors or people that have helped us, which I must admit, I've been so fortunate to have, but also that we call out who the drillers are and understand that their effect should not be permanent to us. So his idea was, no, they cannot die. You will write the book. Um, I was just, I don't know, an energy hit me. I, I believe the book has a has an opportunity. I, I think it's a window, okay? I, I like to think of things as a window. I think the book can become a window for maybe, I don't know, for some people to be able to say, this makes sense. You know, I need to be better at work. I need to be a better human, a better leader at work. I think we spend, you know, without question, we spend the majority of our lives on the job. Why can't it be better? We produce an environment that is hinged on the fact that we're miserable. I think we got to do something about that. Now, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to change the world by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, you throw a pebble in the ocean, it produces just very, very tiny ripples. I, I'm a pebble in an ocean. Uh, and if I can produce some ripples, great. If it produces no ripples at all, then it is what it is. But I need to be able to provide this opportunity to at least give the distinction and maybe, maybe, maybe it becomes something. And if it does, then it's not a waste, but it, it's it's never a waste, even if only one person is affected. What have so, I missed about the book? What what should I have asked you about that I haven't yet? Well, the positive assessment tool. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that. I don't, you know, look, I'm selling it. So I'm going to be very clear that that's a part of <laughs> who we are. I'm not going to hide it. I do workshops. I make a living, not a positive leader. I have the PAT. It's an assessment tool called positivity assessment tool. Um, it's been utilized since thousands of times over the last 15 years or so. Uh, we've developed an individual tool. So we have a hiring tool, we have a training tool, and we have an individual tool. Uh, it's 148 questions. It identifies seven specific personality traits, two mindsets, four learning traits, and their capacities, two communication traits, and nine behavioral traits. So a total of 20, 24 traits. The questions are weighted. We have algorithms that we've set and used. We, we know you know, we've studied very hard what the standard deviations are. We've kept a very close eye on everything. And it's helped many, many people in their hiring process, organizations in their hiring process. It's helped individuals kind of learn and see who they are to maybe move away from that unconsciousness to a more conscious reality of this is my personality. And man, it really does make sense. I'm, I'm not a very agreeable person and I don't like taking other people's perspectives. And knowing that alone provides an opportunity for change to occur. So it's it's like, you know, I, I think that I think we whether it's whether it's the PAT or another assessment that could provide that type of input, I think we it's once again we go back to science. I think we need science to discover the reality. It's not vice versa. <laughs> we need science, right? We invented the wheel so that we can invent transportation, right? We didn't invent transportation saying now we need a wheel. So it's kind of <laughs> like there, there's a process that takes place. So we, we have to know who we are. How do we move out of unconsciousness if we don't know what our true makeup is? And you can only do that through assessments. And by the way, don't trust the people around you because they'll tell you what you want to hear in order to keep you who you are. So let's be careful with that too. Hmm. 
Well, so you mentioned being a pebble. I'm curious, what would make the book successful? What what does success look like for you in terms of this book? Well, I'd love to be able to say that, you know, millions of people will read it. It will be on the New York Times bestseller list and and I'll be on Oprah. But I have no interest <laughs> in any of that at this point. I don't even know if Oprah has a show anymore. But, you know, I have no interest in any of that whatsoever. I love the idea that you will present this as part of what I do at a class. I, I love the concept that Chuck Fu will use it out at City University. I love the idea of, of university seeing this book as a potential book to be able to endorse everything that you've done, Chuck Fu's done, the research that's been done, that's gone into this book, uh, and use it as a means of teaching people to be better leaders, better managers for the future. I, I'm excited if, if two people read the book, one person reads the book and they say, oh my God, this this is really something I need to do. And they can change the environment of the work that they're at and people go home happier. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm okay with all of that. You know, I'm 66 years old. I'm not overly concerned with the idea of reaching fame from this book. So that's got nothing to do with it. I, I think an interesting thing to see is this. Those that that want to use this will find a way to do it. Rowers always find these types of books and they use them to their advantage. The sitters will always find a reason to not use the book, right? That it's just easier to sit and God bless them. You know, just don't start drilling. And the drillers will find their satisfaction in drilling by making fun of the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm ready for all three. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So what advice would you have for others who want to write a book? Maybe, you know, maybe we're not at your stage yet or, or even ready to think about a legacy, but any advice that you would give potential future book writers? It doesn't matter what I say. It, it really doesn't matter what I say because I understand personalities and behavior so much. So I could give advice and it will either fall on dead ears or it will be let me put it this way. People who are going to write a book are going to write a book. Okay. They don't need me to give them advice on how to write a book. My only advice would be for them is to take a lot of notes. If, if a book is in your future, then sit down and keep a journal because, you know, when I went back to write this book, I had like 12 journals of just data filled from all my meetings, from all my work, from everything I've done, my notes I've taken meetings with with everyone, conversations that I've had with you, Dr. Reese, conversations with Dr. Lamb, just thought processes in my mind as to why do people act this way and then finding the research on it or getting Chuck Fu to dig out the research through his RAs and sending it to me so that I can apply it. Take a lot of notes and get ready to use those notes to write the book. You know, knowing personalities and behaviors, it doesn't matter what I say. You will do what you need to do. That much I know to be true. Just know that it's it's not as miserable as it sounds either. It's a lot of fun. It's a bit stressful, but, you know, what else are you going to do? I don't know. I think that's the best thing I could say. Maybe what I'm trying to say is if you have a book in your future, you should start writing it before you sit down and write the book. What's next for you then? So I'm working on book number two. <laughs> 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 so I'm taking the concept of the sitter driller and I'm working with a, a team, a couple of people that are therapists and psychiatrists, psychologists, trained therapists. And I'm working with uh, Dion Vamal and the, and the Institute. So I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to apply science and I'm going to have my therapist as a part of that. 
I'm going to apply philosophy from what Dion Bamal works with with me and what I'm learning. And then I'm going to provide the reality part. And I want to introduce Rower Sitter Drillers as the idea that in all of life, we are either a rower, a sitter, or a driller. And knowing that if we're surrounded by rowers, we should be extremely grateful and we should we should hug them and cherish them. And if we're surrounded by drillers, then we need to get out of that environment uh, as fast as we can and seek help because of the damage that they could have provided to us. I want to pull the Band-Aid off of, you know, the sore that the drillers have caused. So it's an awareness um, because I think the entire world is affected. I want to point that out. Uh, now, whether or not, once again, people want to listen to it is a whole nother story, but I think it's important to be out there. I know the Institute will be using the book as part of its studies, as well as uh, some therapy groups that I'm working with. There, there are avenues that are more important that I think will happen with the second book. Uh, so I'm excited about that. So always lots of things happening. So please keep us updated on that. But before we close out, any final words of advice or insight for our listeners? I've learned over the years that most people are inherently good. The majority of the world is good. The majority of people are good. The majority of people want to do good. I think what's happened is we, we don't allow that part of our lives to be known or to be shown. And I think it's because of drillers in all areas of our lives. So my advice to everybody is kick yourselves in the ass and, and start fixing yourselves. All right. Choose to be kind. Know that kindness is a strength and not a weakness. You know, my father always told me people that are kind tend to be thought of as being weak. We see that in our politics. We see that in our leaders where people make fun of people that are nice you know, with the insinuation that they're weak. I think kind people are stronger than people that are not kind. I think it's easier not to be kind than it is to be kind because you have to be conscious in order to be kind. You you can be unconscious and be unkind. I think that's what I would say and keep calm and carry on. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. There's certainly a lot there to think about. What we learned today from our podcast guest, Paul Fayad, is threefold. First, the understanding of the concept of positive leadership and the importance of utilizing this concept within organizations. Second is that our focus should be on those rowers and the work that they accomplish in order to increase productivity and lower turnover and have lots of other positive outcomes in organizations. We should really work to identify and show gratitude to these rowers and trusting that people are fundamentally kind and good. Third, the understanding that personalities are stable and that changing those personalities that are not a good fit with our organizations is not really where our focus might most productively be. Again, it should be on recognizing and rewarding positive behaviors in our rowers. So as our series name states, I'm glad I know that now. It's been a wonderful conversation. And once more, I'm Laura Reese. And on behalf of all of us, we thank our guest, Paul Fayad, a book author, film producer, humanitarian, serial entrepreneur, former and current CEO, lifelong learner, and constant questioner. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Thank you. On behalf of our NAC team, Deborah Sai, Michael Gross, Jennifer Parlamas, Laura Reese, and Ming Hong Sai, thank you for listening. For more information about this and every episode, you can check out the podcast notes on the NAC website. There you can find additional sources and links to material cited in each episode. Please tell a friend about our podcast, and we hope you will join us next time for another fascinating discussion about a topic you'll be glad to know about.